0: We left last week with the king of Elam. We made sure we understood him. The fourth king is the king called Tidal. Abraham met him also in that battle that he fought. And we want to understand what happened to this king, how he migrated. And so this is what we're going to talk about today as his last king. And remember last week I was mentioning that there's a very special king that Abraham met as well, that he didn't actually go to war with. But he did have a special encounter with this king. Some of you probably already know who I'm talking about. But again, we're talking about those kings and how their progeny, and under Satan's rule and Satan's plan, the Gentile world powers migrated out. And there's a very special king, not of that ilk, but nevertheless is coming to the close of this age, among all of them, for a special purpose. But let's talk about Tidal the king of nations, this one is called, in Hebrew, he's the king of the... Anybody get know what the word is? Goyim. Goyim, right. Goyim, like us, he's the king of nations. In the Hebrew, the word Goyim is a reference to any Gentile nation or anybody from the Gentile nations. I'm a Goyim. Most of us here are Goyim. Remember, the Bible only talks of three people, and one of those people groups is the Goyim. I've got some information about this king here from history, so I'm going to read it to you. Since this king is the king of the Goyim, his power extends at least across most of the Gentile nations. But remember, when the Bible speaks in the Old Testament, it speaks about people as they relate to Israel. So the known world at that time was pretty small. But as things grew and we moved toward the New Testament, we have Greece and we have Rome. And so, of course, these became the major Gentile powers toward the end. And of course, now we know, we'll see the statue in a minute, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, I think most of you are familiar with it. We're going to actually map these four kings into that dream. That's how tightly these four kings are mapped into prophecy as they move out. So the last of these kings, and the last king in the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, is this Tidal. Um, history seems to connect him to Tudhalia the First, Tudhalia the First, T U D H A L I A the First, and he was the ruler of the Hittite Empire. So that's what history says. And you know, those Hittites were not very nice people. They're one of the ites that was against Israel. So that's the genesis of this. And of course, you know, Israel has a long memory. They may not be saved, and they may not know the truth of Christ and their Messiah, but they do have a long history that they're always fighting against, because it always keeps on coming back to beat them up, even today. So the Hittites were a people who once lived in what is modern Turkey and northern Syria. So on this map here, here's modern Turkey, which of course abuts Syria these are where the Hittite people gathered, and of course, there's good old Canaan in that day, the promised land. If the Hittites were there, you know that they're part of Satan's noose that he's always trying to put around poor Israel's neck. Secular history shows that the first indication of their existence occurred about 1900 BC, which was, guess what, the time of Abraham. This Tadalia 1, who connects to this Tadal, It looks to me, anyway, like there's a similarity in the name. History calls him Tudhalia, and the scriptures call him Tidal. It sounds like the king of Elas, which the Greeks still call themselves the descendants of Elas. So I think there's something in the name here. So it wasn't too long after Abraham battled these kings that these people, under that kingship, if you will, started really multiplying in the area. And, of course, it's still around the Canaan area. Tidal's region of rulership would then include most of modern Turkey and part of Syria. History shows in that period of the Hittites that their kings originated, now listen to this, this is great, their kings originated certain strategies that we use today. It's just the way history rolls out. I'll give you one strategy, which is an economic strategy, which we use today, and I've mentioned this in my class a long time ago. Anybody remember the character named Laban in Scripture? You know the story with Jacob working for him, and he's he actually swindled Jacob. And then Jacob was a swindler too, so they actually, actually were good together. They worked well together. But I remember mentioning in my class, this is going back a couple of years ago now, that when we track Laban's people in history, they migrated north into what is now Lebanon. So you see Lebanon, here's Beirut right there on the map. And there's a town called Tyre. You ever hear of scripture mentioning Tyre as, as a sea merchant, seafaring people? And yes, and God curses them and he says that you have these wonderful huge ships with cedar masts. What was he talking about? These were the merchants of the known world. What later evolved into how the merchants of the world work today in the container shipping business. They also, these people of Laban, invented buy now, pay later. History shows that. And that's how they enslave people even more. And that works very well to enslave people. It enslaves countries and, and people all the time. What they said is, you can buy our merchandise and pay in installments or, you know, however they did their trade back then. But before they developed this great economic, part of a great economic system, that really built them up as the merchants because they started owning more and more. But people were buying more and more in credit, thinking they could afford it. You know how it works today. But who gets rich in the end? The creditor. And so they would buy and sell, as the scripture says, fine linens and purple and spices and all these things, and they had these great ships. And God said, I will break up your ships, I will curse your ships with these cedar masks. By the way, what does God say that he's going to do to the global economy in the book of Revelation at the end, right? All the merchants are going to look and mourn afar off as the whore of Babylon, who they, well, they fornicated with, and it means that they... They loved her, they got wealthy from her, they were involved with her, and she was the economic engine of the end times world. And she's going to be destroyed very quickly. You see what I'm saying here? So these economic systems are satanic in nature, and but we still use them. You ever look at our form of government in the United States? We have a Senate. What other form of government had a Senate? The Romans. You look at the architecture, it's Greek revival with the Roman overtones, right? History doesn't change, but it all stems from these kings from Nimrod. So now that I've laid that foundation, which is, I hope, what I did here, the Hittites had their own practices that they developed, which were not so much for economic gain or, or to run the economic world, but for a military advantage. And they had the practice of engaging and training and mounting large mercenary armies for battle. Now I looked this up and this is exactly what it said. You know what a mercenary is, right? Actually, these are the kind of people who they sent to Libya to get rid of Muammar Gaddafi. Now, these guys don't have a dog in the hunt. They don't care who wins. As long as they get paid and they get their weapons, they'll kill anybody. Just point them in the right direction and give them a buck and they'll kill you. So these are the people, by the way, you know that Benghazi affair? This is how modern day this is. This Benghazi affair was actually part of the plan that that Obama administration was involved with And that's why it's covered up. It was a gun running scheme. Basically, what had happened was, and I mentioned this in my class way before the Benghazi thing even happened, that these mercenaries, they're Al-Qaeda, which the CIA trained. So these mercenaries get great training. Hittites developed that. They pay them to be an army of well-trained people because they can get them and train them, and then they can use them wherever and whenever they want, which is very convenient. Guns for hire. So the ones from Libya are now migrated to Turkey and then into Syria as the rebels, which we are going to arm even more. The quote-unquote good guys are not really the good guys, except we're calling them the good guys because we're paying and training these mercenaries and giving them weapons to fight our bad guy, which is not our bad guy. It's really Obama and the world elite's bad guy, which is Bashar Assad. They want him out of there. Which, of course, Russia doesn't want Assad out of there, so now you see we're butting heads. But it's these mercenary arms. So, oh, by the way, so the Benghazi affair was a scheme to run the weapons needed to follow these men from Libya across. That's why they needed the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, to help them get across and migrate them up into through Gaza. And I guess they were flying them in too, up to Turkey, into Syria. So they were probably flying them in. And, however, they got them through Egypt and then up this way and into Turkey and into Syria. This is a mercenary army, and you see how it is effective even today? That's what we're talking about. So the Hittites really developed this type of battle system. They would hire the best warriors of the surrounding tribes. So they didn't even have to have homegrown people become the best warriors. You know, it's like family. Some of your family is great. Most of them probably are not, but... They are yours, and that's what you got, right? But if you need fighters, don't come to my family. But if the neighbor next door has a bunch of rugged men, if I can pay them, I still can get an army, but I don't have to depend on just myself. This is what they did. Armies for hire. So they would take the best warriors from the surrounding tribes. And then they were all regimented through a systematic training program because the Hittites were excellent fighters. That's what they were. Giving great training and espionage training and fight training to these mercenaries. They have no moral dog in this hunt. Now we're talking about Tidal, king of nations, who seems to connect very strongly to these people, the Hittites, through Tadhalioth I, ruler of the Hittite Empire. So now they're in the north of Israel. Elam migrated to southwestern Iran. We know Elas was Greece. We know that Ariak was Turkey. But these guys really saturated Turkey and into Syria. So that's where they migrated to. Okay, we know what their specialty is. Finally, Tadal, the king of nations, the title itself suggests a large sphere of influence where these other kings pretty much localized into the Iran that's today. You know the enemy and we know where he is. And the Iranians are Iranians. Back in the ancient days, Iran and Iraq were the land of Shinar. It was all the same place, but you see how the migration brought them to one place and they became those people and they pretty much stayed there. Same thing with Greece, right? But this Tadal, king of nations, actually migrated, and because of the way they had this military prowess, they started capturing other nations and tribes and expanding. And so, why I'm saying this is that they, he was the king of more than just that area, the king of the nations. As a matter of fact, many Jews still believe that Tidal is the progenitor of the large Western Gentile powers that followed each other in succession in history. And they strongly state, and I look this up, Many Jews, those who have learned about history, they will say that Tidal is Rome. And Rome was the king of nations. They pretty much went and conquered or annexed what they couldn't conquer, but they just went out and conquered. And they were a military machine, a la the Hittites. That makes sense? This is the history I'm trying to bring you. An interesting note that I found this, and I don't know if you've ever heard of this. I've heard of it, and I actually looked it up because I had heard of it. It's called The Art Scroll Commentary on the Book of Genesis by Rabbi Mier Zlotowitz. You pronounce it. Z-L-O-T-O-W-I-T-Z. The Art Scroll Commentary on the Book of Genesis by this rabbi. Now, of course, he's a rabbi. So would I trust him for the absolute truth? No. But what I can trust him for is the Hebrew, what they believe or what they think. So here's what it says. Quote, According to the Midrash, which is a paraphrase about how history rolls out scripture-wise for the Jew, it's really more rabbinical. That's the best I can do with it, but that's what the Midrash is. The Goyim that's referenced in the Midrash refers to Rome. All the nations. Tadal, king of nations. Tadal is Rome. Rome conquers everything. Rome, by nature, has been the king of nations. And we also know that it is sort of the resurrected Roman Empire that's coming back in the European Union to finalize the corralling of all nations into one world system. That make sense? Okay. The legs of prophecy are very long, aren't they? And this is what I'm trying to bring here. So he says, according to the Midrash, the Goyim refers to Rome, which levies troops from all nations. Oh, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Rabbi Eliezer Bar Abinah said, when you see the powers fighting each other, look for the advent or the feet of the King Messiah. When you see the powers fighting each other in the context of Tadal, Rome, taking all the nations, this is his quote. This rabbi who wrote that book is quoting this other rabbi. See, they love each other, but you see where the mindset is, right? Rabbi, uh, I'm not going to say his name again. You can figure that out. But when you see the powers fighting each other, look for the advent of the king, not Jesus Christ for them, but Messiah. Isn't that Interesting. Also, if you look at the Muslim eschatology, who is their Messiah? The 12th 12th Imam. The Mahdi. Exactly. And what do they say has to be the condition of the world before the Mahdi comes? It must be in a state of chaos. And Ahmadinejad, by the way, i got to tell you something about Ahmadinejad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You heard that? That's what I was going to tell you, right? He's not even going to be president anymore as of August of Iran, but... He's going to visit Moscow. He's going to, he's yeah. going to see uh, Putin. So also, did you know Ahmadinejad said that uh, Chavez was going to come back with the Mahdi too? Did you remember hearing about that one? When Chavez died? Ahmadinejad said he was such a good man that Mahdi's going to bring him back with him. So now Ahmadinejad and Chavez, and of course Jesus Christ behind them all is going to come back with the Mahdi. Isn't that great? <laughs> oh, but they're kooks who believe all sorts of things, right? Okay. That's right. The biggest kook of them all. (laughs) So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 40. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 40. Now, Daniel chapter 2, verse 40, we're going to start and we're going to actually read this in a couple different translations, but he's in the process of telling Nebuchadnezzar about his dream. Right? Remember Nebuchadnezzar, you know the story. Does anybody not know the story of Nebuchadnezzar? Of course you do. Everybody here knows that. Isn't it interesting how Daniel is the major prophet of major prophecy that details the Gentile world powers all the way through the end? Isn't that interesting? In this dream, you're going to see it starts at Babylon and ends at the end time, right? And that's what that's what Daniel's tracking. But here's the point. There are three people groups that the Bible talks about. And they are, we talked about this two weeks ago, the Jews, the Christians, and everybody else. Right, the Goyim, right? So would you know that there are three books prophetically mapping the general history from God's prophetic point of view for each one of those people groups? How do you like that? What are those books? Well, let me tell you. The first book, because we're talking about it, is the major book of prophecy, the book of Daniel. That tracks the general prophetic timeline of the Goyim. It doesn't really track Israel, does it? It speaks to the Gentile powers and these four kings rising from Nimrod, which are the four kings in this dream, which is pretty much the centerpiece of this book. Let's now talk about the book that generally speaks to the prophetic timeline for the Jew, which is the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel tracks the history of Israel, and if we have time, if you want to, because we're not going to spend too much time tonight on this, we'll probably end on time, but I have some scriptures I put together from Ezekiel, from Isaiah, from a couple others, which tracks how God rolls out the history, a review of history, a near history, and a full timeline to the end, and they're from these different books. So we have Daniel, which tracks the prophetic history of the Goyim group, We have Ezekiel, which tracks the history of the Israel group and the Jew. It shows about God's retribution and restoration. And you know Ezekiel goes all the way up to the Battle of Gog and Magog. And thereafter, including the fourth temple, you know that there's going to be not three, but four. We're waiting for the third, right? Who builds the fourth temple? Himself. That's right. That's why the Jews, and I asked this question to our tour guide when I went to Israel last year. Shlomo. I asked him about the fourth temple in Ezekiel, and he didn't want to answer. Remember I asked him? You know, the Jews are trying, and I, matter of fact, I think I heard this from Jimmy DeYoung, one of his shows years ago. You know how they have the model in Jerusalem of the temple, Mount, you know, the whole Jerusalem of that time with, with Herod's temple? They tried to model the fourth temple, and they can't figure it out. Because it doesn't have some of the attributes that the other three temples, or the other two, plus the new one, will have. The court of the Gentiles is missing and so forth. Anyway, I'm not going to get into all that, but it does talk about that temple because it's talking about the whole prophetic timeline. And let's face it, who out of the three people groups' whose lives revolve around the temple of God? Israel. So that's why Ezekiel talks about it. Now, the third people group are Christians. Guess whose book is the prophetic timeline of the Christians? Revelation. Revelation starts out talking about a brief history of the church. There's seven letters to seven churches, a number of completeness seven types of churches, and then it goes right into the rapture, and then it goes right into prophetic events, it goes, it it reviews history, it has some of the symbolism from Daniel, doesn't it? And revisits that, but it winds up at the end, not with the restoration of Israel as its subject, it winds up in chapter 19 with the second coming of Jesus Christ as king of kings and lord of lords on his white horse and all of the church following him on their white horses. Isn't that great? The book of Daniel, which we're going to get into now, remember that that's the timeline that is going to track what we're talking about in this instance is the Gentile world powers. And remember that the rule of the Temple Mount or Jerusalem has to be under Gentile rule until all things are fulfilled. So that's why this still applies. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 40 to 45 thinking about what we just talked about with Tidal and Elam and, and Elas and Ardiach and Nimrod and all the others. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. Matter of fact, let me bring it up now. Here's the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And what I did for this particular picture is I mapped in. Hey, I did pretty good mapping the, matching the colors, didn't I? As we look at this, I want you to look at the top with the head of gold, which is Babylon. Remember, it's Nimrod of Shinar. That's the first king that Abraham fought, that we talked about. Silver, Media Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and then the Medes and the Persians, which is Kerdalomer of Elam, which we talked about, settled in the southwestern territory of what is now Iran. Then we have the Belly of Bronze, which is the Greek Empire, which is Ariyak of el Remember, I told you that the Greeks still call themselves the children of Elas. And then, of course, we have, finally, Tidal, king of nations, or the Goyim, which maps into iron. We just read that in Daniel, didn't we? And then the mixed iron and clay at the toes of the image. You see where we're going with this? So as we study from this point to what we're going to finish up with tonight, keep referencing this map. I hope this ties this all in together for you, because remember what we're doing here. This is a high-level overview of how God is allowing Satan's Gentile powers to generate themselves and so forth. Now, Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron in the Roman Empire. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it, that Gentile power, will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, which is this one down here, which you notice is related to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire never really died. It went underground. It's coming back. Europe is part of this. We know that Europe is going to play a big part in how it's going to be configured. What we don't know is exactly how yet, but it's starting to come to life. We also know that the Antichrist, which we would see in Daniel, is going to be of the Roman and Greek stock with some Danite blood in him as well. It it very strongly seems he's got to have ties to all of this. As we get closer to this end times playing out, We're getting pretty close to seeing how it's going to work out, right? Look at all the articles I've been able to send you about technology and how the mark of the beast may roll out. Isn't that amazing? And I remember back in like 2000 when I first started wondering about prophecy. Wow, this is amazing. There's a future and God's got it all wrapped up. I knew that. But when I started learning about these more esoteric things, I said, people are going to think I'm crazy if I start telling them what I'm learning. Well, that turned out to be true, but it's all payback now because it's all starting to come to pass, right? So in the year 2000, there was a company called Digital Angel. Anybody ever hear of Digital Angel? And I don't know, are they still around now? Or they mutate know. to something else? I don't, I don't, I didn't follow it. Yeah, but you remember that, right? And they were the progenitors of what became RFID. That's what they were doing. Of course, the technology now is moving into the DNA realm. Oh, it's already there. Yes, exactly. But I remember also a big thing that happened in the year 2000 was the entire Human genome had been mapped. Yeah, that, was that was huge. And I wondered, who cares to do all that? Well, we know now. Okay. We're getting down to this part here of iron and clay. So, verse 42. As the toes were part iron and part clay. Now, I want you to think of this as we move along here. And you've been in my class, so you've heard me mention this before. But I want you to really think of this. When God designed and created Adam and Eve, what did He make them of as stated simply in Scripture? The dust of the earth. Right. Clay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Remember when Jesus healed this blind man? He, used clay. he clay. used clay. I think that's a little symbolic. Personal. But we do know that the human genome, the human Humans are made of the elements of the earth. If that's the case, there are two things that are going to mix here. Iron and clay. Why would God choose to give a dream of a statue that's going to end up with iron and clay in the part of the statue that has to be strong enough to hold up the whole weight? That's a design flaw, if you ask me. If I was going to make something out of iron and clay, I wouldn't put it as part of a statue that's got to hold up the weight of this massive metal structure. You know it's going to crumble. So maybe it was designed to fail. All right. You see where I'm going with this? Iron and clay. If you think about it, if humans' DNA is more fragile and and imperfect as far as, not design, but as far as Lifespan as far as because it's made of the stuff of the universe, which was created after angels were created. That means angels existed before the universe did because they were there and they jumped for joy when God created the physical universe. What I'm trying to say is the clay that God used to create Adam and Eve did not even exist when God used whatever he used to create the DNA of angels. Get what I'm saying? Angels are more powerful. They can do interdimensional transportation of themselves right would you say that they manifest in these dimensions and don't we can't do that there's a lot of things that they can do that we cannot do and they're always a lot stronger and a matter of fact it said that jesus when he became a human in relation to angels what did it say about him when jesus became human in relation to angels there was a statement made about him made a little lower than the angels so human dna is made a little lower than angelic dna of course we have more potential. You see this principle? I'm just trying to make you see that there's very strong indications that there is more to this than just a physical Gentile world powers. We're talking about the interloping and intermixing of higher powers with humans create this really strong but temporary fragile mixing of seed. That make sense? See where we're going with this? So now with that in mind, let's keep going. Verse 43, and just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be, the people will be a mixture. Hmm. The people will be a mixture of iron and clay. Think about that. Just think about it. And will not remain united. Now again, this is the NIV. We're going to read this again in the uh, King James Version. The people, so it says, the people will not remain united any more than I am mixed with clay. Daniel 2, verse 44. In the time of those kings, those kings, down here, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people or any other goyim, right? Any other Gentile nation. After these four, it's done. That's what he's saying here. Something's gonna replace it. So let's see. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, which that was part of the dream. You all remember that, right? That part of this dream is he sees this, Nebuchadnezzar sees the statue, and then he sees off in the distance, there's a mountain, and a rock comes out of the mountain. It's actually a stone. It says rock here there's a difference but anyway it's uncut by human hands it just comes out of this mountain it travels to this image hits it on this iron and clay stand and the whole thing comes crashing down and gets so pulverized it blows away like chaff in the wind as if it never existed and then the end of the dream is that rock itself grows into a huge mountain that covers the earth Anybody remember that from nebuchadnezzar's dream what do you think that means A mountain signifies in Scripture a domain. just a kingdom or a domain, just like trees do. Okay, so there's a mountain where a rock is cut out of a mountain, then it itself destroys this image, and it itself becomes a mountain, but this mountain encompasses the whole earth, and it endures forever. Who do you think that is? Say again? Absolutely. That's right. Daniel was talking about Jesus Christ, and he didn't even really know it. But isn't that wonderful how he ties these four Gentile kings which retract from Abraham through history to where they are now. I read you current events all about what's going on here. I got some more of that stuff coming as time goes on. We're down here, aren't we? We're also talking about mixing of iron DNA and clay DNA. How do we know that? Let's continue. Verse 45. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock that cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. He names them all into pieces. The great God, so we know who this is, has shown the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will take place in the future. Now, as a seal of approval on all of this, the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Amen. Let me read that to you again in, in the King James version, and let me see if there's any difference here. Daniel 2 verses 41 to 43. And whereas thou saw the feet and toes part of potter's clay, ooh, who's the clay and who's the potter, you see? Right. Same thing. And part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it the strength, in it, the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with the miry clay. So mixed together will be iron, the special strong attributes of iron. It's not a pretty metal, but it is strong. There's a special mixing of something here that's going to give it strength, but strength to be used for evil purposes, and it will not cleave with the clay because they can't, right? Okay. So it says here, for as much as thou sawest the iron and clay mixed with my clay, verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. So now there's a duality principle here. We're talking about the end of the world empires. We're also talking about something else, which is going to drive the final end time push toward the Antichrist. It's going to coagulate these kingdoms into a kingdom that will be driven by transhumans. It very strongly seems. I know it sounds like a fairy tale, but it ain't. It ain't. And the Antichrist, very strongly, is going to be probably like a Nimrod, which Nimrod, it's said in Scripture, was becoming like one of them. So something was happening in Nimrod. He's becoming converted, and he was given eyes to even start seeing the ethereal where he was building that tower. He might have had the sensory perception now to start seeing into the ether, and seeing things that normal humans cannot see. Remember Balaam's donkey? Remember how there was an angel standing there, and he was scared of it, but Balaam didn't see it. But he saw it. We know that, if you ever hear the black-eyed children, anybody hear about the black-eyed children? No, they're called black-eyed. They actually have fully black eyes. There's no whites in their pupil. And they appear at people's doorsteps. This is happening now. There's many documented cases of it, where they're weird, they're not human, or there's something wrong with them, they're semi-human. And they say, just let us in. It won't take long. And they're always asking for permission to let them in. And when people see them, they see black, and they get this fear and dread, and they run. This is the truth, folks. This is happening now. It's been happening a lot. Yeah, all over the world. There was this one incident where this guy in a pickup truck in Texas was driving at night from one part of Texas to another, and he pulled over on a lonely road. There were no houses, no farm, nothing. Nothing around. Nothing. I mean, nothing. So he's out in the front of his truck relieving himself. And as he's going back to this truck, there's a little boy standing there. Where did he come from? There was nothing around. It was like 3 in the morning, very late night, early in the morning. And he's got a cap on. He's dressed okay, but kind of funny. This is as the story goes. Okay. And he says, I want to take a ride. Let's go for a ride in your truck. And, and the guy's concerned because he's saying, what is this? What's going on here? You know, where are you, where are you from? And he's looking around. There's nothing around. He said, what are you doing out in the middle of nowhere? How would you even get here? The kid just insisted on getting into his truck, but he had to ask permission, and the guy was so frightened, he just ran into his truck and took off. A few miles down the road, he started thinking, what have I done? If this kid needed help, i got to go back and, and find him, but he was still petrified. So he went back, no trace of the kid. And I know more stories, and these are documented stories. This is not a fairy tale. This stuff is happening. This is happening. So what's mixing with the iron and the clay? There's something going on here. Something going on here. But I digress. Verse 43 in Daniel chapter 2 in the King James Version. And whereas thou sawst iron mixed with miry clay, they, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. But think of that. If you're saying they're going to mingle themselves with the seed of human beings... And if the they are human beings, why would they say they are going to mix themselves with themselves? So the they must be something not human. Do you see what I'm saying here? It's these. It's it's the DNA. It's the engineered DNA from. That's, you see, Satan has a breeding program. There these cattle mutilations, these abductions. This is all really happening. This is the stuff that started back in the days of Noah, why there had to be a flood with the Nephilim. And that's why it says, and I showed this to Rachel in Isaiah 26, that the Raphaim are dead. There is no salvation for them. They will never rise again. They are dead. And we were talking about grace and mercy stop when the subject is non-human. There is no salvation for non-humans. That's why God said in Genesis... That he created everything to procreate after its own kind. But of course, you can engineer DNA if you have the technology to make what are called chimera. Anybody hear of chimera? Do you think that's just mythology that didn't happen? Where they have birds and animals mixed with men and other animals? Of course. I told you that in England, they said they destroyed 134 or so chimera embryos. But that doesn't tell you that they destroyed every one of them just because there was such an uproar that they were mixing. Did you know that they're mixing human DNA with rice? They are. I'm going to tell you what they're doing. There was a story that came out about that there was some land, I think it was Wisconsin, it was in flat growing areas in the Midwest. This company wanted to get arable land to grow rice and the local people did not want them to grow the rice because they knew it was genetically engineered rice. So what they did, they went north into an area that allowed them to buy 3,200 or so acres to plant this rice. Now, why was there a problem? Because this rice wasn't even being grown for human consumption. They had spliced human DNA from the liver into the rice seed. And they were going to grow the rice so that it could produce this enzyme or whatever component that grows in the human liver so that it can produce it in mass. So that the pharmaceutical companies can buy that rice, extract whatever produces from that DNA that's in it, acts like the liver. The DNA in the rice makes the rice act like the liver to the extent that it produces some secretion. And they can take the secretion and use it to build their pharmaceuticals to make enough to sell. They need the real excretion or whatever this stuff is and they can't get it from real humans. Whatever it is, yeah. So the DNA functions and does what its job is, but it does it within the context of growing rice in a field. The problem is, is, if this rice, they say it's supposed to be sterile. But what if this rice starts blowing in the wind and starts mixing with regular, pure rices of regular strain? Exactly. But it is working, and it's still going to work. There are countries who are now banning that, but the United States is not and never will. They won't even allow it to be labeled. But I don't want to keep going on that track. What I'm trying to tell you is they are going to mix themselves with the seed of men. Have we agreed that that's possible? That's what I'm saying. Have we agreed that if that's the case and Daniel knew something was up here, we must be down here somewhere, would we agree? Because this technology was not available even 15, 20 years ago. But it's now here. The context is that something other than human is going to mix with the seed of men. If you look at it the way it's stated in a different translation, the NIV, and just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be in mixture and they will not remain united. That's not what the Hebrew says. It says, and they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. I'm going to err on the side of the King James Version because the NIV... Has other problems which I've showed you, and they even leave some scripture out. Let me and, read it from the Amplified. We talked before about, uh, you know, we have a friend, a uh, Yeah. She, she's a scientist, and she uh, related to Kevin mm-hmm. uh, secrets from the uh, laboratory. They're mixing DNA with mm-hmm. uh, human and animal. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it's happening. It's in Boston. Yep. And Boston's a very big scientific community. Mm-hmm. A lot of these people come out of MIT. A lot of it's going on in Europe, too, especially in London. Sure. Let me read the same verses again from the Amplified Version. Let's see if that helps us. All right? We'll just see. Daniel 2, verse 41. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of baked clay of the potter and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but there shall be in it some of the firmness and strength of iron, just as you saw the iron mixed with miry earth and clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of baked clay of the potter, It's like there's a creator being talked about here. It's the clay. It's not just clay that happened to come about. It's the clay of a potter. It's a special clay that was designed to be used to create pottery. The clay of the potter. We are the clay and he's the potter. And we are all made in vessels that are be used for noble uses and those that are used for the underbed commode. But if that's your lot in life, that's what it is. That's what he made you for. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. And I should have said it like that because you hit it on the head. Because what does it say in scripture? We are fighting principalities and governments and heavenly powers of the air. And that's why we need a whole armor, right? And whatever happens in the spiritual world eventually will manifest here. And God is going to allow it to manifest. There's war in heaven all the time. And there's techniques and they're, all stops are pulled that God allows Satan to use. And he's allowing Him to do these things. Very good, thank you. Verse 43 from the Amplified Version. And as you saw the iron mixed with miry and earthen and clay, here it goes again, and earthen and clay, so they shall mingle themselves in the seed of men in marriage bonds. Isn't that interesting? Just as in Genesis 6 verse 4 and the sons of God so that the daughters of men were fair, and they chose all whom they wanted to and made wives of them and had children. And those were the giants, the men of renown, which the flood eliminated. And the Nephilim are coming back, and they may not be giants, but they'll be transhuman. I think they're already here. They are. Oh, they are. Transhumans are already here. And they shall mingle themselves in the seed of men. Does that sound like governments to you? Does that sound like a people not being united? No, it doesn't. But they will not hold together for, listen to this, for two such elements or ideologies can never harmonize. So you see, it's talking about both. Governmental structure, which is an ideology, or elements, which are physical mingling of something. Even as iron does not mingle itself with clay. Now that we beat that to death, have I made it clear? And this is what all these kings are wrapping up to. So just who are they? Well, I leave that up to you, but we know that it's two things here. Even though Tidal's empire precedes Imperial Rome by 2,000 years, we're talking, remember, it's at the Hittite time, which is the Abrahamic time, it is the metaphoric progenitor of the final empire of the biblical prophecy, which one day will encompass the entire earth, which is this dream. So again, these kings permeate through the stack over time. And that's what he's saying, though. But the most prominent one is Tidal, because he is the king of the whole world. And out of him will come the king of the world for Satan, the Antichrist. None of these other kings are going to do that, but they are kings that are going to also help to try to bring this one world system to power, mingle the seed of them with men through science and technology and so forth, through rule and law and, and medical edicts and so forth. You see how he's got it all wrapped up, but all of the other kings are going to help get to the point of getting the world ready for war. All these other kings are warlike or faction-like, and they're all against Israel, And Tadal is the leader of them all, wrapping them all up, and they all stand back to Nimrod, king of Shinar, which founded Sodom, which founded Nineveh, and of course, Babylon, or Babel. We've had a good conversation before, and I just want you to just think of this real quick. You remember the stories of Sodom and of also Nineveh? Well, Nimrod was the progenitor of both those cities. He made those cities. They're both pretty evil, and they both have his stamp of approval, if you will, his paradigm. Wasn't that from the line of Cain? No, absolutely not. It was Nimrod who started these things. No, there were people from the line of Cain. I guess what I'm saying is, the people from the line of Cain and the line of Seth, they were all people, right, from Adam. But the point is, is that that's not the point of how the governments ran. It was from Nimrod, who's echoing today through all the world's religions and everything. So, here's my point. The story of Sodom, Abraham had his nephew Lot in that city and his family. And he was going to destroy the city, Remember? And Abraham was pleading with God and sort of thinking he was bargaining with God and God is entertaining him. Mm-hmm. And he says to God, if there were 100 righteous people, would you destroy it? No. If there were 50, no. God, I really don't want to annoy you, but i got to keep asking you. God said even if there was one righteous person there, he would not destroy it. Who did he bring out of the city before he destroyed the city? No, Lot. Lot. The angels. of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But Sodom, everybody else in that city were destroyed. Right? Let's move forward to Nineveh. Remember, with Nineveh, it's the same type of wicked city. It was. There was really no difference. It had the same government structure because it was all from Nimrod. It had the same MO. It operated the same way. It was a very wicked city. But God dealt with them differently. Listen, when time came for God to judge Nineveh, what did he first do? He called Jonah. And he told Jonah, go warn these people. Well, yeah, he didn't want to go. But but the point, yeah. And he got spanked until he went. So that tells us something as Christians. If we're sent somewhere, you better go before you get spanked. Noah was so happy to go after he got spit out because he was brought down to the netherworld. That's where he was brought. I'm sorry, Jonah. Noah, Jonah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, Jonah. So Jonah was brought down to Hades, it seems very strongly, and brought back up and coughed up. And he said, okay, I I can see what's going to happen if... Feel you know, what judgment's like, and and uh, I want to now prevent Nineveh from and myself from being judged. I think that's what happened. God showed Jonah. I was going to say Noah again. By the way, Church, this is what's going to happen to these people if you don't go warn them. But here's my point: Who did he send to Sodom before he destroyed Sodom? The angels came to get Lot. The answer is no one. No, you're right. You see. This moral e- equivalency we always look for, and that's the problem, because God is not beholden to our morality. His is perfect. He sent no warning to Sodom. All he did was send warning to Lot, and then he had to drag them out. If you're asking me, you don't want to leave? Stay there. Go ahead. Get burned. Right, Learn a lesson. But Nineveh, he not only sent warning, but he had to spank Jonah around enough times to make him go and do it. That's how much he loved these people and wanted to save them and give them a chance in Nineveh. See the dichotomy here? And then what happened when Jonah finally went to Nineveh? From the king, who was a pagan, on down. Even the animals, they said, make him dress him in sackcloth and ashes. They repented. Everything was heartfelt. They were not destroyed, but like everything else, yep. Yeah. so they started again, and a hundred years later, God didn't warn them again, he just destroyed the city, and the city has never been heard of him again. And how many times does it say in scripture, and we're going to see it, maybe not here, but we read those other passages that I'm talking about, maybe next week, does he say, and in those days it shall be for this nation as it was for Sodom, as it was for Gomorrah. I'm just telling you. So we see how God operates. There is a point at which salvation and grace are not available. Another point of that is when God sends Israel and says, kill all the women, kill all the children, kill all the animals. Animals? God is a merciless God. No. There's a reason why these children, these women, these animals had to be killed. Because there was something wrong with their physiology. There was a pollution. There was something wrong. When the spies went into Canaan, and I've used this example many times, they come back with a single cluster of grapes that is so large and heavy it took two men to carry it on a pole. How do you feed giants that are like 20 feet tall in the land of Canaan with big food genetically modified to feed them? Do you see where Monsanto's heading us? Did you know that they're creating seed now that can grow in highly aluminized soil? Did you know one of the reasons why they're doing that? It's because all of these chemtrails, they're dumping aluminum and heavy metals into the air, to do something, weather control, but now they're starting to rain on the earth and they're starting to pull the soils. So now they're creating genetic stock to put up with the different soil pHs and the different metals in the soils and stuff. This is truth. I'm telling you what you can find in the news. We don't have much time. Yeah, yeah. See, they think they're playing God. Anyway, let's move on. Tadal's empire precedes Rome by 2,000 years, yet it worms its way all the way down It is truly remarkable that these four kings give us an advanced view of Babylon, Greece, Medo-Persia, and Rome. Their historical order is only slightly altered when we see them in the rulership positions that Daniel later reveals as representative of the future Gentile world ruler. Now, we see then that when Abraham engages these four kings, he really acts out a theme which will later be expanded into these four Gentile world-ruling powers, which we've talked ad nauseum about now. We've talked enough about them, but you see how they cope. And Daniel wraps up with uh, Daniel 31. He says, I'm not going to read it because we already went through it. I want to cut this short a little bit here. Here's some interesting points, and we'll wrap up. Daniel's prophecy was given at the end of the 7th century BC. That's about 1,300 years after Abraham battled with those kings. So it's not that long a time, but it's long enough. Yet God had given him to document the unbroken thread of progression of what had already decreed would roll out from Abraham. This all started at Abraham with the four kings. And God gave it to Daniel 1,300 years later to lay out for us a couple thousand years later. See how this rolls out? The review of this reverberation in the timeline, that is, early history plays out as an initial form. Remember these concentric rings I told you that time is, that prophecy is? It's concentric rings. The early history plays out in an initial form, which is later carried out to a matured, fully developed historical conclusion. History keeps repeating itself, but it gets bigger and more pronounced and more sure as it approaches its final iteration, which is coming. Listen to this. One final note about planned and purposeful reverberations in the timeline. Listen to this. Classical Jewish teaching. I like finding this stuff because you could look at how Jewish the scriptures are and how the Jewish thought reveals so much about it. Not that it's true, but you can see how they're thought. Right, exactly. Classical Jewish teaching states that Abram, i.e. Israel, was born in, listen to this, because no one knows exactly when he was born, but classical Jewish teaching states that Abram or Abram was born in 1948, what they call AC, after creation. Now, they believe that Adam was created in 4004 B.C., which I personally believe is true because if you were in my class, which you guys, some of you were, when I started this and I gave the software that can show you a timeline of how the stars and the planets move, Rosh Hashanah of 4004 B.C. seems very strongly when Adam was created. What would have been Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Because God taught them the stars and the planets and how they move because that marks the times and seasons which God created them for. It looks like they're doing this kind of thing as well. So they believe that creation took place in 4004 BC. 1948. You ring a bell? Yeah. Although there is much more to this, they have noted, they have noted that the year 1948 A.D. is also the year of the rebirth of Abraham's people, Israel, in the modern time. Could it be that they are viewing something prophetic in nature? I wouldn't write them off that quickly. Just as Abram was called and came on the scene to defeat the four Gentile rulers of his time, he came on the scene in 1948 to wrap up these four kings that were plaguing the area at that time. Could it be that Israel or Abram was reborn as the modern nation of Israel in 1948 because we know that Israel is a time marker for the end time and the generation that sees that will also be there to see this Gentile rule brought to an end. Sounds kind of prophetic to me, doesn't it? Abraham, born in 1948 AD, as Israel has the same destiny to defeat the final Gentile empires under God's sword. Well, if you look at Ezekiel, you look at Isaiah, you look at Psalm 83, Israel's going to fight the same kings that Abram fought before he generated Jacob and Israel and the whole thing. Isn't that amazing how Abraham goes through time as Jacob and Israel and the 12 tribes and they come to the end and the four Gentile kings start from really, from let's say from Nimrod, okay, after the flood. And it flourishes out and marches and weaves itself through time with all of the Jewish and Israel and Jacob and Abraham's side and all of these Gentile kings and gods and mythology. And they all travel together because the first king failed and they're all trying to get the final king on the throne because he who gets the final king on the throne wins. It's the whole story right there. That's prophecy. The final point. The amazing timeline symmetry of this dating system reminds Israel and us as Christians if we learn and seek to understand that God is in control of the destiny of all men, especially his very precious elect, both Israel and the end-time church. A final point about Abraham's history as a four type of past and future history. He defeated the Northern Alliance and returned to Salem in about 2023 BC when he was about 75 years old if the date of 1948 is in fact prophetically meaningful in that it is the year of both Abraham's and Israel's birth, 1948 A.C. and A.D., could it also be that the year 2023 has some end-time prophetic implications as well? I'm just asking the question. Not saying that this is surely the case, but it is something to ponder as we seek to better understand God and his plan for us as we move through the preordained timeline. Let's see. I know you guys want to get out of here. I got more we can just finish up next week, and I want to get into that final king called, I'll just give you his name. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Anybody know? No. Melchizedek. That's going to be it for today. Hopefully, this was beneficial for you. Four kings travel through the whole timeline, along with Abraham and his progeny. We see how they've manifested to this modern day how they've used their economic systems and their military systems. We use them today, the governmental structures that they developed as kings, we use today as the Goyen. And now it's all coming to a close. And something's going to happen with the seed of men, but also all of these are going to wind up crashing down when they try to bring something else in to mix with the modern-day government. And one of those things is they're looking at laws right now. They've been doing this for a while now. Because when you have transhumans with extra sensory perceptions, sensory modalities that are not human, you have to start looking at the Constitution. Where do human rights stop and where do transhuman rights start? Or if you're investigating a crime scene, and I've used this example before, some superhuman with super strength or very good night vision or that doesn't need sleep can cause crimes and affect them in such ways that when you come as a police officer or an agent on a crime scene, you have to now investigate it from the standpoint that this crime may have not been committed by a normal human with limited capability. Like if you come upon somebody with a dog bite, you can tell by the teeth, by the size of the bite, and how the flesh is torn, probably what kind of animal it was. If it's a huge chunk, it's probably not a human being that bit that person. But that's part of crime scene investigation. You see what I'm saying? Laws, governmental structure, how you care and feed and clothe and house and give rights and bring to justice superhumans or transhumans versus normal humans. How do you do that? What if they have higher mental capability and how do you bring them through school? One day it may be that you as a human being, as a human parent, may be put in jail or fined if you don't allow your kids to get a vaccination that gives them the ability to have enhanced brain capability because you're keeping them at a disadvantage because now they have to compete in school with other parents who've allowed their children to be modified so that their brains function or they don't need as much sleep and they can study for a test without the hardships that normal human beings do. So then you'd be the bad parent and you'd be liable to fines and or imprisonment or something else. You see where this is going folks? This is not a but joke. And then yeah. Say again, Mike. And then they'll probably take your kid away from you, like they did in California. Would tell me about the California story. Um, these parents had their newborn infants in the hospital, and um, the doctor was telling them that they needed immediate surgery, <laughs> and they wanted a second opinion, so they took their kid to another doctor, who said the kid was fine to go home. And all, the next day, police showed up at their house and took the kid away from them, and they've been fighting to get the kid back ever since because they were deemed uh, not fit parents for not having oh, the surgery. Yeah. I remember that now. That's right. Nice. Yeah. But you see, so this is where the mingling of governmental systems and the laws, and let's face it, the government is made of laws and the economic system and so forth, is going to have to change to accommodate This iron and clay mix in both the government, the secular, to accommodate everybody, human or not. And that's my point.